0: Well, as we are moving this morning through our series, the skinny Santa idea, I hope that you've had um, some fun. It's been somewhat interesting, for me at least, to learn some things about Nicholas of Myra I never, never knew. I know that we are prone to imagine Santa looking like this, but one of our older icons of what he looked like was actually like this. So he wasn't the fat, jolly guy, but rather a, a skinny um, bishop, an elder of the church who helped lead the church here. In Myra, south of what we know now as, as Turkey, this area right here. And that is what he was doing. We, we learned the first week we talked about his generosity. And that sort of is where this story comes from. Him giving of his own wealth to preserve the life of three young women. Last week we learned that Santa Claus, as we call him sometimes, was in fact a missionary missionary. Who is so zealous for the Lord that when he came across shrines to gods, he would tear down the shrines and perform exorcisms to cast out the demons that those shrines invited into those regions. And we talked last week that if your Santa Claus doesn't cast out demons, he's lamer than the real one, right? And so... Uh, We are moving this week to talk about another story that often comes up around this time of year. It's one of the more legendary tales, but it goes something like this. There was a great controversy early on in Christianity over whether or not Jesus was created by God as a divinely created being or whether or not Jesus was in fact fully the incarnation of God in reality. Emperor Constantine called together all of the bishops in 327. They all came together to, to debate this topic. On one side were, was Arius and his followers, the Arians, who believed that Jesus was a created being. On the other side was the majority at the time, and it kind of shifted a little bit. But, but the, the church uh, accepted an orthodox view that Jesus was, in fact... God incarnate and as this debate was raging back and forth one speaker had so enraged Santa Claus we'll call him that (laughs) so enraged Santa Claus with what he was saying about Jesus being a created being and not in fact God he was enraged and crossed the room and slapped him across the face not, this wasn't like a fist fight or something like that, right? He wasn't throwing down MMA style, but it was kind of a knock the sense into you kind of thing. You blasphemed against Jesus, and this zeal for him so took over that, that his... He, he, and the story kind of continues on that Constantine, the emperor, was so scandalized by this behavior that he threw Santa in jail, but being warned in a dream himself of St. Nicholas's rightness in declaring Jesus to be God, he freed him immediately, and so you'll get, um, you'll get, if you're on Facebook or Instagram or something like that, you'll start to see these kinds of things around this time. Deck the halls, try deck the heretic, that's a good one. Came to pr- give presents to kids and to punch heretics, and I just ran out of presents. That, that one's my favorite one. Probably not entirely true. We're not sure that he was present there. His name doesn't appear in the list that we would have expected. But what's interesting about the story is that that early on, this story of this person we call Santa Claus or Nicholas of Myra, bishop of the church, the memory that they had early on was that he was so zealous for Jesus, so impassioned, that he would be outraged that someone would dare to say Jesus was not God made flesh. This outrage is just the way that they thought of him, that his zeal for the Lord would have been so intense that it was poured out into a real thing, And that's one of the things that I really love about this story, that there are things to be outraged about. There are things to be upset about. Unfortunately, you won't find any of them on Facebook, right? The problem right now is that we live in a culture of outrage, right? This is what we have going on right now. Everyone is so upset and so willing to throw down and fight no matter what. We are so consumed with this Right now, I feel it, and I see it. Does anybody else feel it? Anyone else see it? It's like we're all ready to just launch full force at the first person who ticks us off. And that just gets better as you're driving in Christmas traffic, right? I know, it's all jingle bells all the way, baby, right? I read this quote from uh, Martin Luther King. Um, I thought I'd share it with you. I really like it. How hard it is... For people to live without someone to look down upon, really to look down upon. It is not just that they feel cheated out of someone to hate. It is that they are compelled to look more closely into themselves. And I do believe that this is the majority of our outrage. It is easier to look at other people and to see what it is about them that drives us nuts... Or this completely wrong than it is to look inside of ourselves and ask, "What am, who am I? You know, where am I? What am I like?" And I think that that's what's going on in our. Our age. And as the political season heats, heats up, you can't imagine it getting any hotter, but as it continues to get hotter, as things continue to expand, as your holidays get very boiling hot with all kinds of drama, as you're so busy and so pulled and so drawn and so tired and so outraged, I just want everyone to take a deep breath and remember that this is a season of peace and that Jesus ultimately came to be the Prince of Peace. Who brings to us peace—peace peace with God, peace with ourselves, and peace with one another? The story goes like this. We're going to jump into and read some, a section out of uh, out of Matthew here. The story is familiar to you. If you want to follow along, or if you just want to sit and listen, um, if you want to follow along, it's, it's page eight oh seven. That's where I'll be. We'll begin with verse. 18. You remember probably very well that Matthew begins his story, his telling of Jesus, with a genealogy, name after name after name, and I won't read them all because most of us can't pronounce them. Right? Uh, They've changed. Now we don't name people Hagla, no matter what you tell your wife. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way: when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the holy spirit. And her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, "Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary home as your wife, for what is conceived in her is from the holy spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill the word of the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel commanded him, took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus." This is a story that in some way might not seem to comport with the idea of outrage, but I I think it will as we go along. You can imagine, um, as we do every year, I've read this, I mean, I've read this at least 30 times, right? Preached it so many times and we know this story inside and out, what's new to come out of it. I was struck by something new this year, something that I had never heard anyone say from a pulpit. And so I thought at least I would be, in my own mind, the first to do so. And that is this. Isn't it funny that Joseph didn't believe Mary? Like, he didn't believe her. She told him, and he thought about it, and he said, nah, I'm out. (laughs) I'm going to put you away quietly. I saw this, this, this cracked me up. Because you would make that face, right? Every year I'm just taken aback again by that fact. You would make that face. Joseph hears this. I am betrothed to you. And she says, I'm having a baby. And he says, it's not mine. I know that. And she says, it's cool. It's God's. So a dream happens, right? Right? God shows up and sends an angel in a dream, which immediately caused me to ask a question I'd never asked before, and that is this. Would an angel have come if Joseph had believed her? Like, was the angel plan B? Like, oh man, he doesn't believe, so we better make a phone call real quick, right? It's interesting. It's interesting. What's interesting, too, is you notice, what does, what does the Bible say specifically about Joseph. He's resolved to put her away, and he's going to do it quietly because he is a righteous or a just man, right? He's concerned with goodness. He's concerned with rightness. He's concerned with justice. You with me? Everybody with me? Seems in the text. All right. So let's remember our Bibles for a second. How many of you remember Leviticus 20.10? Anybody? Off the top of your head, real quick. You like go right to heaven, if you can name that. I'm just kidding. This is not a great verse to memorize. If you did, I'd be like really worried about you. Leviticus 20.10, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely, what's the word you saw there? Surely be put to death. Generally speaking, when we think about somebody who is... Um, you know, maybe maybe think of it kind of like a graph. This is what I was raised with in church, is this kind of this, this idea. So as you think about maybe a chart of a graph, you've got your vertical and your horizontal, you have this idea that that as, as we follow the Bible more closely, comport to it more directly, follow it more tightly, more specifically, we increase our righteousness and our justice. Right? This may be the, the clearest piece of legal framework I've ever seen in my life. How many of you think we should put Mary to death? It's a very interesting story, isn't it? Very interesting story. We're supposed to pay attention to the verses that come before um, Before a story, right, you always pay attention to context. We have this phrase, we say context is king. That means you pay attention to what came before, what what came after. You pay attention to the whole shape of the story. And we have to pay attention to the shape of the genealogy of Jesus. Because Matthew starts there, which we usually skip and jump right to this story of Mary and Joseph. But Matthew has in his mind that before you ever got to Mary and before you ever got to Joseph, first you heard this long list of names. And some of you already know where this is going. There is a very interesting thing that show up in that long list of names. This long list of the righteous march of God's holy people bringing forth into the world the Savior of the world. Right? And in this we have Tamar who shrewdly prostituted herself with her father-in-law in order to continue the line. Then we have Rahab, who is also well known as a prostitute, Lady of the Night, had a brothel in Jericho, and is not a Jew, obviously. So the pure, clean line that you have in your mind of all the perfection of this Jewish, you know, hopeful march of goodness is already tainted, right? Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and then Solomon, who is born. By Dead your wise wife, reminding us all of the time that David, the man after God's own heart, raped Bathsheba and killed her husband. So we are brought immediately into this genealogy that is holy and sacred and blessed and walked with God and meant to be a blessing in all of our platitudes and hopes, and yet it's all what? A hot mess. And when God steps into the world, he steps in through this long line of messiness that we have given him. And when he steps into the world, he chooses to step into the world in a scandal, to wrap it in a scandal, to wrap it in Mary, and to give it to Joseph, and to say to both of them, Be the light, right? And what you have out of this, I think, is deeply comforting to me, because if I look at my life, it is not a straight line of ever-increasing goodness, Um, it's something, more meandering. And what I think as I see this, I think how powerful it is that this is how God has come to us. When we say, Emmanuel, God is with us, this is how God has chosen. He has chosen to come into the mess of our lives, into the mess of all of this, and to say that in the mess of all of it, there's something deeper. There's something deeper that Joseph understood. It was deeper than the words that were even on the page. Mercy. Mercy. He was a just man, and he was not willing to let the outrage that he must have felt, he must have felt, right? I mean, isn't that a betrayal of some kind? Isn't that a betrayal? Isn't the outrage you would have felt immediately? Wouldn't you have been immediately just fired? How dare you? How could you? Don't lie to me. Don't give me that crap. You think of all of the things that would have been going through his head. But instead of defending himself, instead of giving in to the outrage, instead of allowing it to be his way of putting her in his, her place... Or his way of even defending his own honor and rightness, he allows himself to be taken advantage of. His concern for her was greater than his concern for himself. And God honors that, calls it justice. In fact, there's a beautiful word. It's a Bible word. It's the best word we can use, which is, of course, why it's a Bible words, that word chesed, which carries this idea of loyalty and faithfulness along with the idea of affection and concern and love, that Joseph exemplifies this over his own needs and honor, that he might be a just man. I think of Micah 6 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness. And this here is kind of a really bad translation. This is that word chesed, remember that I just used? To do justice. What are our actions? Our actions are to do things that are just, to do things that are right. And what are we supposed to be? We're supposed to be people who are deeply faithful, deeply allied to God and to one another. And deeply affectionate toward God and toward one another. And to walk humbly with God. This is what we are called to. This is what Jesus exemplifies. That's what God is calling us to do. That is the steady march and testimony from the prophets to Jesus himself to call us to be that kind of people. And in order to do that, we need to learn how to be peaceable people. We need to learn how to be peaceable people who live in an age of outrage. We have to learn how to be better than all of that and how to push beyond it, and to become more than it, and to see God, and to see each other as more than just enemies, as more than just people who we need to fight with, but rather we need to bring each other together, as Jesus calls us together. One of the dangers uh, is thinking too much, or uh, one of the things that brings me to, to a conc- as I'm coming to a conclusion here, I'm thinking about, What comfort it gives me to think about Jesus and his outrage. Because as you think about Jesus and what he did, as he experienced his own outrage in his own instances, what happens is Jesus is only outraged at people who are religious leaders oppressing people. He's outraged over injustice, he's outraged over sickness, he's outraged over poverty in some instances, he's outraged over all these different instances. You see Jesus kind of have these little blips of outrage and yet you notice that he is never outraged at the sinner, is he? He's he's walking with them. In fact, when they bring the woman, we talked about the story a few weeks ago, they bring that woman caught in adultery, they throw her at Jesus' feet. Who is Jesus outraged? Is he outraged that she broke the law of Moses? Is he outraged that she's breaking Leviticus 20.10? Or is he outraged that she's being used like a pawn in the game of the elite? That's what he's outraged about. That's who he condemns. Jesus is calling us then to recognize, in fact, the whole of this story, everything about this story, is calling us to remember that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, that he is the one who brings us together, not draw us apart. The one who calls us to respond with kindness and not with outrage. As we cl- cl- uh, conclude, I want to read a little section out of a, a book um, I don't normally do this, but th- this, there's this guy named Jean Veneer. Jean Veneer, his French, so I pronounce it poorly. But um, he helped set up uh, these little h- houses, these uh, homes basically all over the world in which people who have disabilities come and live with people who do not have disabilities and they just live in community together. People who couldn't normally live together, couldn't live on their own. Um, and so he spent his life... I'm developing this, uh, these homes called La Arche, where they just give of themselves to each other, serving um, people who have mental or physical disabilities. He talks about who Jesus was, and I really think it's a beautiful, a beautiful piece. And so I wanted to read it with you as we kind of conclude here, thinking about who Jesus is, especially as we get into the last few weeks of this season. It's going to get really wild for all of us, I know. And so just hold on to this. The heart of the vision of Jesus is to bring people together, to meet, to engage in dialogue, to love each other. Jesus wants to break down the walls that separate groups. How will he do this? How will he do this? He will do this by saying to each one, You are important, you are precious. There can be no peacemaking or social work or anything else to improve our world unless we are convinced that other people are important. You are precious. You. Not just people, but you. And you, me, we have been called to change things, to change the movement of history, to make our world a place of love and not just a place of conflict and competition. May it be so. Let's stand as we sing this song to our Lord and Savior, the one who takes away the sins of the world.